0: this notion that Trump is over and going away, it's an illusion. It is not unimaginable that they will come back and win the House and the Senate and try to bring back Trump again in 2024.
1: Welcome to episode forty-three of the Refuse Fascism podcast. This podcast is brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of this show. This past week, the GOP has been criticizing, centering, even protesting in the streets against so-called moderates in their party. You know, those who have the audacity to see Trump's impeachment as constitutional. Marjorie Taylor Greene has skyrocketed to infamy for most of the country with openly anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, unmasked outbursts against colleagues, rabid support for the January 6th coup attempt before, during, and after, and much more. But this has only solidified her celebrity within Republican circles. Christian theocrats were joined by violent white supremacists in the streets and House Minority Leader McCarthy met with Trump to discuss the future of their party. Meanwhile, Trump's trial in the Senate seems to have almost petered out before it even begins. And efforts to remove congressional co-conspirators seem to have stalled. Despite the majority of people in this country rejecting Trump's program, despite the horror they felt just this past month as they watched the fascist movement take new heights of mobilizing as they stormed the Capitol. And weeks later, those who incited it face no consequences, too many are moving on, shaking their heads and going back to sleep. In a New Year's statement by Baba Avakian, revolutionary leader, titled, A New Year, the Urgent Need for a Radically New World, for the Emancipation of All of Humanity, he writes, yet the reality is that not only in relation to this election, but throughout the four years of this regime's rule and its mounting atrocities, There has not been the massive nonviolent mobilization called for by Refuse Fascism to drive out this regime. And in the aftermath of the election, the streets were dominated by fascist mobilizations and not by opposition to fascism. This has resulted in a situation where despite the Trump-Pence regime's loss in the election, the forces of fascism are still in many ways being strengthened. And the opposition to this has remained much too passive and reliant on the terms set by the Democratic Party. The reality has to be confronted that, as expressed through the election, nearly half this country has passionately, aggressively, and belligerently embraced what is represented by Trumpism. The unavoidable truth is that this country, the much-proclaimed shining city on a hill, is full of fascists in the government at all levels, and in large parts of society as a whole. And a defining characteristic of these fascists is their fanatical allegiance to demented distortions of reality, which is extremely difficult, and in many cases impossible, to penetrate with reason and fact, because these distortions serve to reinforce their sense of threatened entitlement and render long-standing prejudice and hatreds even more virulent. This fascism is deeply rooted in the underlying dynamics of the capitalist imperialist system that rules in this country, and the whole history of this country, from its founding in slavery and genocide. This was just an excerpt, and you can read it in full at revcom.us. And I encourage everyone to think about what the implications of all of this are. A movement demanding that Trump be convicted in the Senate impeachment trial, that these fascists still in power be removed, and that in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America is more relevant, more needed than ever. Right now, all of us are required to be courageous enough to confront the uncomfortable truths, to look at how we got in this mess in the first place, and to help us do that, we are sharing a discussion I had yesterday with Paul Street to chat about the anatomy of fascism denial, 31 flavors of anti anti-fascism, which you'll be able to read soon on Counterpunch. Paul is a journalist and historian. He is the author of The Hollow Resistance, Obama-Trump, and the Politics of Appeasement, and he sits on the RefuseFascism.org editorial board. I want to talk to you about a piece that you have coming out soon on Counterpunch that's getting into the anatomy of fascism denial and all the ways all the the excuses that people have used for the past 4 years to deny and delude themselves and others into thinking that there is not an existential threat posed to humanity, embodied by what Trump's domination of the world's largest superpower for four years has meant. I had the pleasure of digging into this before it was published. One of the excuses that struck me the most that I feel resonated so loudly, and I'm sure that our listeners have run up against this time and time again, is your big fascist Trump is gone now. So shut up about fascism. I was talking with someone, I guess it was yesterday now, and they were like, you need to stop talking about Trump because we have things that need to be taken care of. We have health care that needs to be taken care of. We have an economy in crisis. We have a pandemic. We need to stop talking about Trump because Trump is done. So fascism is done.
0: I've run into that, too. So this essay is going to be called Anatomy of Fascism Denial, 31 Flavors of Anti-Fascism. And I guess with my 31 flavors, I'm, I'm playing off of Baskin Robbins' ice cream. But The Anatomy of Fascism uh, Denial is I'm doing a play off of the title of probably the major go-to book that people know about when they think about what was fascism. That's Robert Paxton's Anatomy of Fascism, which, like and Paxton, like a lot of the people who the journalists have gone to in recent years asking the question, is Trump a fascist? Paxton's a European historian. Paxton's a student of a previous centuries. He's a student of Mussolini and Hitler, not of the 21st century neo-fascism that we've been talking about vis-a-vis Trump. And amusingly enough, Paxton denied for four years and then up until just with six days left in the Trump administration. I thought this was hilarious. He had six days to go and it was the January 6th attack on the Capitol that he decided Trump had finally crossed a red line, which was paramilitary violence directed against democracy, even though that had been the essence of Trump and what Trump had been talking about and calling for, along with a lot of other things that, that made Trump a fascist, really, from the beginning. Now, this thing that we can't impeach Trump, even though he's out of office now, so shut up out about him, so stop with the impeachment. Uh, and there's even that some... People are raising questions about whether that's constitutional. It's fully constitutional. Like 99% of constitutional lawyers say so. It's important because it's a prelude to the legal banning of this fascist lunatic from ever coming back into elected office. Again, it's very important that we do so. But that argument is that it's not that we don't have time. What, really? How long should it take? How difficult should it be that this guy should be convicted? Really? That's going to be so time consuming that that we won't have time for COVID relief and that we won't have time for environmental legislation, that we won't have time for minimum wage legislation. Give me a break. I mean, women have been balancing domestic workloads and paid employment and juggling 15 different responsibilities for time immemorial in American history. I think highly paid you know, millionaire senators can find time to take a little bit of time in the afternoon to convict a criminal fascist president. But this notion that Trump is over And going away, it's an illusion. Those of us who were anti-fascists against Trump never focused only on Trump. We thought Trump was an agent, a potentially transient and transitional symbol, an agent and fanner of an eliminationist, white nationalist, neo-fascistic movement that predates him, that he then exacerbated and fanned, and that will survive him after he's gone okay we've always been concerned about trump not just trump in and of itself because we don't like donald trump because we think he's a nasty guy but because we have thought of him as a symbol of a bigger problem which is american political neo-fascism but furthermore now it turns out it looks like he's not gone he's not anywhere near as gone as people thought he was going to be i mean last tuesday mitch mcconnell the senate minority leader who said that trump's role in instigating the january 6th attack was impeachable He just voted for a measure that says it would be unconstitutional to impeach Trump. He's that scared of the Trump age. Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, who still won't admit that Biden is the legitimate president of the United States and who said in Congress that Trump instigated the lethal fascist assault on the Capitol on January 6th, just went down to Mar-a-Lago to uh, make amends with Donald Trump because that's how scared they are of Trump's continuing relevance, the 10 House Republicans who had the decency to vote for the impeachment of fascist Trump are now all catching hell in their districts because of the popularity of Trump and Trumpism in their districts. And it's really not entirely unimaginable that Trump could come back in, that this fascistic Republican Party, I call it the Republic fascist party right now. Is that 140 or 150 of them voted in the house claiming that the Biden's election was illegitimate and the January 6th attack. It is not unimaginable that they will come back and win the House and the Senate, the Democrats only have small leads in both of them, and try to bring back Trump again in 2024. And you want to see some serious fascism, then look at that kind of U.S. government then. So the people telling us to shut up about Trump, that it's all over and that fascism is over, are out of their minds. There are at least four people in the House right now that have direct links to and ties to the far right wing militia groups that attacked the Capitol with the intent of possibly murdering members of the House of Representatives and the Senate. And even Michael, Mike Pence, the Christian fascist vice president. So, I mean, you know, sorry, it ain't over, you know, it's not over.
1: Where do you think that comes from? The insistence despite objective reality that it's over. Where do you think that comes from?
0: So I hear this kind of stuff online and my online network is largely leftists of certain kinds. And there's a certain wing and a certain type of the left. Much of the which is just over the years from a lot of these folks that I call Trump and lefties a lot because um, they were sort of drawn to me like moths to a lamp or like ants to a candy bar because of all my work from the left about the. this very critical and has been very critical of the neoliberalism and the imperialism. And I would say the objective of white supremacism of the Obama phenomena and the Obama presidency. The line you sort of hear sometimes is that you're focusing on that then you are somehow an apologist. If you're focused on the fascism of the right, the neo-fascism of the right wing, then you are somehow an ally and an apologist and agent of the neoliberalism, imperialism of the Democratic Party. It's very partisan. It's almost like a sort of inverted internalization of the partisan tribalism in a way. It's very odd, a lot of these folks who made excuses consistently for four years for, for Trump by deflecting constantly to the sins and the crimes of Obama that I wrote about and that I denounced about and then I protest. And, you know, it's funny when when Obama was in, they didn't deflect all the crimes of George W. Bush. I've never understood it. I've been a consistent leftist. Public enemy number one is always the head of the American empire. My main public enemy between 2001 and 2009 was George W. Bush. My main public enemy between 2009 and 2017 was Barack Obama. And my main public enemy from 2017 to 2021 was Donald Trump. And I've always been militantly bipartisan in who I criticize. So I don't know what that is. It's a certain... Part of the so-called left has become a sort of de facto wing enabler component of the Trump phenomena. And I'm not going to name names, but a number of them are in my Facebook so-called friendless. And it's really quite fascinating to behold. I mean, we've been dealing, a lot of us in refuse fascism have been catching a lot of hell from them for four or three years. They give us lectures on stuff we already know, like like we don't know that the Democrats are corporate, like we don't know that they're imperialists, like we don't know they embrace the tearing up of, of AFDC and uh, financial regulation under Clinton in the 90s. And like we don't know that Obama sold out single payer health insurance. We know all of that. I've written books about it, you know.
1: I think one of the things that strikes me is... The denialism is so strong because people don't really understand what fascism is, I think is a big part of it. And for a lot of the left, that's just been the biggest and baddest of insults that you can throw. Everything is fascist. Anything that you don't like from those in power is fascist. And I think it comes down to not understanding that what we live under is a dictatorship and not understanding like what democracy is and not understanding that fascism is the naked dictatorship, the open terror and violence upon anyone who opposes this regime and everyone this regime deems as a threat without a pretense, without even pretending to allow dissent and protest. And that's not saying that there isn't a more contained, decorated dress up form in bourgeois
0: democracy. It's a particularly harsh form of a pre-existing, unelected dictatorship of capital and empire, but without rule of law, without bourgeois parliamentarianism. I mean, one thing I hear a lot is, you know, our real problem is capitalism. There's no need to talk about fascism, which is a distraction from the real problem. So it's kind of as if they think that that fascism isn't capitalism. I and mean, that's, a, that's a really big misunderstanding. That's a false dichotomy. Fascism is a product of, and it subverts, and it's subservient to the modern corporate and capitalist era. It does not overthrow capitalism. It does not overtake capitalism. In classic historical Third Reich and Mussolini capitalism, there's arguably a kind of a wartime mobilization and a shift to a form of state command of the economy. The maximal leader does tell capital to some extent what to do with their means of production. But I mean, even in its classic historical form, it never supplanted private ownership of capital or a private ownership of the means of production and investment. And in fact, it's dedicated to smashing popular left resistance to capitalism and its evil twin imperialism. They're not getting it. Those of us on the anti-fascist, anti-Trumpist left have never said that the enemy is in camp. Of course, it is. that is the underlying system. But when you shift over beyond constitutionalism and beyond rule of law, into this kind of arch repressive, super brutal form, guess what? Resistance to the capital order is unthinkable. You you, you get lined up against a wall in the shot. You have no breathing space anymore. So any serious anti-capitalist or anti-imperialist needs to be anti-fascist.
1: I strongly agree with that last point. For anybody who thinks that they're going to have any chance of revolution, you have to address a, a fascist threat. I also think that those who are serious about Wanting an end to the, this fascist movement also need to be serious about revolution and that the conditions that bring fascism as a way to resolve this needs to be that people look into what is the system that produced it. I think that they're deeply connected and that people should explore deeply. Why is this a solution that those in power would seek out? What dynamics produce a situation where fascism is a logical conclusion? That deserves reckoning with, and that doesn't discount in any way the need for people to fight against, to struggle politically against fascism. People are capable of doing both.
0: I think you're right. Fascism is distinctly a product of the modern corporate capitalist era. We don't have fascism. Prior to capitalism, it emerges from crises of capitalism. One thing you hear a lot from fascism deniers is that, well, fascism only emerges as a ruling class strategy, ruling class strategy to smash an incipient, threatening, highly organized, dangerous left. And we don't have that highly organized revolutionary left in America. So therefore, you can't have any fascism in America. And there's, there's, there's a couple problems with that. One of them is, it's not actually true that fascism is only about smashing a Marxist or communist left. It is also very much and fundamentally about a kind of vengeful and highly ethnic and cultural nationalism, highly ethnocultural. And the classic german model of fascism was this massive underlying theme of anti-semitism and trumpism fascism has had this huge nativist and anti-black white supremacism about it These are fundamental parts of it now in german nazism they combined the um, the ethno-nationalism and the anti-semitism with anti-marxism with the phrase judeo-bolshevism jason stanley talks about it right? so they were horrified by judeo but so there's a strong ethnic angle the other thing is in america the fascist right, the Fox News right, the right wing Breitbart News, the whole right wing media ecosphere and the whole culture of the right, and which moved into the mainstream GOP with Trump and before, arguably, does in fact harp on anti socialism. It's obsessed with socialists. It's, they think Joe Biden is a socialist. They refer to the Black Lives Matter uh, George Floyd uprising as Bolshevik. Uh, William Barr, Trump's attorney general, actually went on the frothing fascist Mark Levine's show on Fox News and referred to Black Lives Matter as Bolshevik. And much of the base believes in their minds that, in fact, there is an insipient radical left socialist revolution. This is drummed home to them. And again and again. And one thing that lends some plausibility to this belief that they have is that a guy who some semi-charismatic presidential candidate who actually called himself a socialist. I don't think actually Bernie Sanders is a socialist. I, I think I know what a socialist is, but he called himself one and he almost got the democratic nomination two election cycles in a row. And there was a massive uprising. It was an extraordinary uprising this summer, the George Floyd uprising. I was a Marxist. I wish it had been, had it had a stronger dose of radical socialism. It wasn't, but it was a remarkable uprising. You could see how the anti-socialism strain of fascism is a thing. Even though we don't have a much to my disappointment, we don't have a great working class left revolutionary movement ready to seize power. I wish we did, but they think we do. And that's really a big deal.
1: I wanted to go back to your title. The the title of your upcoming piece that's going to be on Counterpunch is The Anatomy of Fascism Denial, 31 Flavors of Anti-Anti-Fascism. It's a play, as you said, on what people see as largely the handbook for understanding fascism, the works by Robert Paxton. And he had said, he put out, I think in Newsweek, he put out a piece that Donald Trump became a fascist on January 6th. (laughs) Why is that not true? Why is it important that people not see January 6th as awful as it was, as dangerous as it was? Why don't you see that as the moment that Trump- Well,
0: it's just too late. Those of us who studied Trump as a candidate in 2015 and 2016, identified him at the very least a pre-fascist or a proto-fascist or a neo-fascist. He was already running key fascist themes, vengeful white nationalism, the embrace of the political use of violence, the demonization of others. Instead of me going off on all the characteristics, maybe I should tell your listeners that I just did a piece on Counterpunch this weekend called 31 Flavors of Fascism. And, And go through that and you see that Trump already checked off all these basic underlying characteristics of the political pathology of fascist ideology, fascist narratives, and fascist politics. He was playing the fascist political playbook that Jason Stanley writes about from the very beginning, including the threat to not honor the outcome of an election that didn't go his way. He didn't just say that for the first time leading up to 2020, he said that leading up to 2016. He embraced neo-fascist white supremacist violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August of 2017, in his rallies in 2016, he would tell people to beat people up, that the protesters in the rallies. So there's just absolutely nothing at all new about it. The crossing of the line in the political violence, the full-on political violence that finally did it for Robert Paxton, with six days to go, you know, in the, in the Trump administration. But those alarm bells should have been going off with Charlottesville. They should have been going off with Tree of Life killings in Pittsburgh. They should have gone off with the El Paso mass occur and was it in 2019 they should have been going off when Trump encouraged the Michigan militia to take their guns into an occupied the state militia when he couldn't really speak up forcefully against a proven plot to kidnap and murder Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I mean for Paxton to get it through his skull with six days to go, the Newsweek thing came out with six days to go, but after the January 6th violent and lethal assault on the Capitol that hey, maybe this guy's a fascist, I mean that's that's Monty Python type of stuff. That's almost comedic. I mean, it's embarrassing, if you ask me. It's just kind of absurd. And even uh, the Vox reporter guy who goes and talks to the historians to see if Trump is a fascist, the wrong people to talk to, incident. people who are experts on 100 plus years ago. But anyway, the Vox reporter who went to revisit some of his fascism experts, even after the January 6th assault, all of them were saying no. But no he's not he's still not really a fascist anyway that's a that's a whole other thing that's academia and
1: i think that one of the other excuses that you bring up in your piece that i think connects to a lot of these academics is the claim that Trump's fascism is, was mainly just silly and non consequential rhetoric. And I think that that's a common theme amongst a certain section of academia. Why do you say that it isn't just rhetoric?
0: There's an extraordinary line from the retired University of Wisconsin historian, Stanley Payne, that really got under my skin that I'm writing about in this piece where he said, This was just a bunch of silly public remarks. He said, what did Stanley Payne say? He said, Hitler's place in history is not based on his remarks, on on silly public remarks, nor on any temporary detention cage. And I I thought to myself, geez, really? Just silly remarks? Are are you kidding me? Tell it to the parents who had their children stolen from them at the southern border. Tell it to the survivors of the 400,000 plus people who have died in the pandemic that Trump fanned and spread across this country, I have seen estimates that Trump actually ought to own about two thirds, if not more, of those deaths, about two thirds of the 400,000 plus dead. I mean, tell it to the survivors of the people killed at the Tree of Life massacre or the survivors of the people killed at the El Paso massacre or the survivors or the Puerto Ricans whose trauma and death and misery Trump dismissed, right, Or after Hurricane Maria, I mean, you could go on and, and on and on there, you know, and, and temporary detention cages. You know, I'd like to see Stanley Payne spend a night in one of the border patrol's temporary detention cages. I I go nuts. I have I get claustrophobic. I mean, I, I wonder how he'd react to that. I mean, you know, just rhetoric, but you know, rhetoric matters. Rhetoric matters when you have a white nationalist, hate-filled, semi-charismatic, malignant narcissist regularly spewing venom in the most powerful office on earth where every tweet and every remark is broadcast across the country and around the world, that has consequences. That's a big deal. So dismissing rhetoric is a huge mistake. I know a political scientist named Anthony DiMaggio who's quantifying this. He's actually studying tweets and speeches and, and word choices. And what Trump has said for four years, there has never been anybody ever in the White House that has come remotely close to Trump when it comes to transmitting hatred and white nationalism and sexism and hyper and ecocidalism and science denial and just a whole big slew of the basic narratives of the fascist playbook. So the, the rhetoric is not irrelevant.
1: I think that that's a really important point that you're making on both the power of these words and one of the first things that comes to mind when you talk about the power of words that we've talked a lot about on this show was leading up to January 6th, the refrain of fighting for Trump. People were being inculcated in that message of it being a battle for the Christo-fascist movement that was at the front lines of this. It was a battle for the future of the soul of America. The stakes, we can laugh about them. but Worth
0: worth killing and dying for. Exactly.
1: But that is genuinely how the most entrenched feel and how they think. And that has consequences.
0: It's really interesting. Yale historian Timothy Snyder, you probably saw the piece he did in the New York Times Magazine a couple of weeks ago. Called the American Abyss. And, you know, lying is a big part of fashion. Lying is a big part of authoritarianism. It's a big part of so-called totalitarian politics in general. But he points out there's different levels of lies. And there are really, really, really big ones. Like the stabbed in the back by the international Jewish conspiracy lie that Hitler had. And lying about sex with Stormy Daniels or lying about what he said to the newly elected Ukrainian president. You know, it's all pretty bad. But then there are these massive, huge, historically significant, uh, life-changing types of lies like the stop the steal. That is a freaking gigantic master deception that we're not done with it. And it promises to continue to wreak havoc and fuel right-wing violence in coming months and years, I'm afraid. That's a big deal this absurd claim that Biden's election is illegitimate. I'm not not a Joe Biden fan, but that was a pretty damn free and fair election, all things considered. I mean, even even Trump's top cybersecurity guy said it was the fairest election we've had in a long time. Of course, he got fired for that, which is, by the way, a characteristic of fascists, the purging of anyone deemed remotely disloyal in any way.
1: One thing that this all brings up is, okay. Trump's out. And it is right to breathe a sigh of relief that this fascist doesn't have his finger on the nuclear trigger. What are you thinking, though, about the danger that remains? How are you seeing things? What are you thinking about? How do you repair? Can you repair a situation in which the objective truth, objective reality has been so
0: pummeled? Well, I'm very concerned. Yeah, I'm very concerned. What do
1: you do about a country that is riddled with fascists?
0: I mean it's it's bad. Fifty one percent of Republicans say the GOP didn't go far enough nullifying the election. 56% say Trump has no blame for the January 6th attack. Republicans believe the lie that the election was stolen. And, you know, it's just, it's just astonishing. We have a whole group of people who live literally in an alternative reality universe that is reinforced by an, a Hall of Mirrors ecosphere. Right-wing talk radio, Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, Breitbart, And Facebook and Twitter, and I guess what, Telegram now? And then, you know, you can squeeze them out of these media and they just, they'll run over to new media. People get really depressed on the left and they say, you know, half the country is for Trump. You know, actually, Trump's vote was 20 quarter of the adult population in 2016, and it was about 29 percent of the population in 2020. One of the really big problems that no one wants to talk about in this country is that we absurdly overrepresent the most right-wing and reactionary parts of this country in our electoral system. Our electoral colleges weighted to the right. Our senatorial apportionment system is absurdly weighted to the right. We have gerrymandered to the right. House districts from coast to coast, the state legislatures, who in turn are in charge of congressional districting, are gerrymandered absurdly to the right. I mean, first and foremost, we need to identify this danger for what it really is. quit pussyfooting around about it and get serious about it and reform policy in such a way and and advance policies that will attach people positively to government in ways that will create a coalition that can keep the fascists at bay. But we also have to look at our very core political institutions and redesign them around, quite frankly, one person, one vote. We don't have a one person, one vote electoral system. We don't have a democracy. We literally don't have a functioning democracy we have this kind of preposterously authoritarian small republican fake democracy inherited from slave owners and merchant capitalists for whom democracy was the ultimate nightmare in the late 18th century we are still functioning with an outworn horse and buggy era constitution that absurdly overrepresents the right in this country so and I didn't even mention the filibuster thing, which is just Monty Python-esque. It's just it's just absurd. So we have to take a serious look at our political institutions, along with the standard kinds of things that you hear from the Bernie Sanders left, some of which I agree with. Yeah, we ought to have a $15. How about a $20 an hour federal minimum wage? We obviously need a gigantic Green New Deal, which would be a job creator and might save the environment and would help attach people in a positive way to government as a good thing. We need to have free public college and, and all of that, all of that. Uh, All that AOC kind of stuff, though, I go much further, but that would be a start. We also need to take a look at these political institutions, which I just get a free pass to me. I mean, it's just absurd that Wyoming has the same number of senators as California. It's just absurd that Montana has the same number of senators as New York or Illinois. The Senate is evenly divided, even though Democratic Senate members represent 41 million more people than Republican Senators, and we're going to be over-representing a right wing that has gone neo-fascistic for as long as we remain stuck with these bizarre institutions that we have. They really are off the charts in comparison with European countries and Japan and other states. No one wants to talk about it. I don't know why.
1: Well, thank you, Paul. I want to give you an opportunity to to speak to any other of the 31 that you wanted (laughs) to let listeners know about, to Underscore. Let I encourage you, a you couple to too. go and read the piece soon at Counterpunch. But I wanted to give you an opportunity.
0: I want to mention a couple to you. One is the claim that everyone's been calling Trump a fascist from the start. This, I just, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard that. I've actually researched this. I've actually looked into this. It's a liberal narrative, and liberals have been saying this. But the liberal mainstream media hasn't been incredibly reluctant. To identify, there have been some outliers, but they been incredibly reluctant to do that. It's actually, it's actually not true. You know, I quoted Adam Gopnik in my my last piece from May of 2016. That was very rare. That hasn't happened, and it probably ought to have happened. There was a brief little spate of being able to acknowledge that Trump was a fascist in the summer of 2020, because he was sending out paramilitaries to do nasty stuff in Portland, you know, and because of his response to the George Floyd. And then it went away, and I've noticed already, it's gone again, because I read, I started reading the New York Times all the time, and they're all, they're back to authoritarian- The political
1: amnesia in this country right, is right. serious and, and they're, back to,
0: they're back to a oh, populist again and again. And read my piece, and I'll show why he's not a populist. And they're calling him a populist and an authoritarian. The other one is I hear a lot is, well, Trump, you know, come on, he wasn't a fascist because he's not smart enough to be a fascist. I love that. He's, a, he's not smart enough as if, I know there's some truth in it. He, he never had the discipline. That's true. Trump could never have been a real doctrinal, never could understood fascist doctrine. I mean, even at the level of, Mus- certainly at the level of Mussolini and even at the level of of Hitler, but fascism was never in. is never a brains. It's never about rational thought. It's never about the enlightenment. Quite the opposite. And furthermore, he had some fairly loose fascists in his camp advising him, like Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and, and all of that. So you know, that drives me nuts. You know, because he because he's stupid, he's too stupid to be a fascist. Oh, okay, great. I, I appreciate that. That's a real great objection. If people read my piece, I actually have 31 absurd forms of anti-fascism. But in some ways, that was the craziest of them all.
1: I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it posted. And I know our listeners will be as well. I think that the point on people not using the F word, fascism. And the difference it would have made if there's the false belief that liberals have been throwing around this term. Well, what difference would it actually have made if people did use the term? If people had called a spade a spade and acted accordingly, how much harm would have been prevented? Then they
0: would have had to get up off their ass and do something about it, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I think... I think that you've given us a lot to think about, and I want our listeners to be sure to tune in to hear more from Paul. February 8th, February 8th, Monday, February 8th, 8 p.m. Tune in for refusefascism.org forum, the Senate impeachment trial, and the need to refuse fascism. You can check out the latest from Paul weekly at Counterprunch. Up right now is 31 flavors of fascism. And be sure to tune in to hear from Paul, myself, and others on Monday, February 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for the Refuse Fascism virtual forum, the Senate impeachment trial, and the need to refuse fascism RSVP and get more information at refusefascism.org. Thanks for listening. How close did we come to full-blown fascism? What are we faced with now and what is needed We'll continue to explore these questions and more on this podcast. If you appreciated what you heard and want to hear more each week, be sure to hit subscribe so you can always get the latest. And seriously, I want to hear your thoughts on today's show, your thoughts on previous episodes, your thoughts on the chain situation, what guests and topics you want to see explored. Write me, Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org or on Twitter at sam B. goldman we'll be back with another episode on sunday tell your friends who have questions about why we live in a country full with fascists and how we get out of this situation to listen to some of the shows we put together just this past month with experts and thinkers including educator and author henry Jarrell, dr cornell west reverend william h lamar actress and comedian rosie o'donnell in conversation with Jason Stanley, author of How Fascism Works, and co-initiators of RefuseFascism.org, Andy Z and Zinsara Taylor, and Eric Bowler of Press Run Media. If you aren't a regular listener, go back and check out some of our previous episodes yourself. Thanks to Richie Marini and Lena Thorne for helping co-produce this and all episodes of Refuse Fascism. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Stay safe, not silent, and I'll see you in the
0: streets.